Gerard Du was an early 17th century Dutch painter apprenticed to Rembrandt at the age of 14. This would have been about 1628 or so. Rembrandt taught him how to all of his tricks, how to mix colors and how to create the subtle use of light and dark that created three-dimensional figures on his own canvases that seemed actually to leap to life. The relationship between master and apprentice must have been somewhat powerful because one of Du's most famous paintings is called Portrait of Rembrandt's Mother Reading a Lectionary, or sometimes Portrait of an Old Woman Reading a Lectionary. She would probably have preferred the first title. That word lectionary has an interesting history. It's a choice of readings from the scriptures appointed for specific days of the seasons of the liturgical year. The custom of reading a lectionary during the liturgy goes back to the early days of the church. In fact, it goes beyond the early days of the church because it was a practice borrowed from synagogue worship where the Pentateuch, uh, where the Pentateuch and a section from the prophetic books were read every Sabbath. The scriptures there were arranged in a lectionary cycle to ensure the complete reading of both parts of the Old Testament, the Law and the Prophets. This was not only to instruct the listeners, it was meant to sanctify them through the exposure to the holy books. And this is, in fact, what Jesus does when he enters the synagogue at Nazareth and reads from the scroll of the prophet Isaiah, the second of those two readings. So the story of the lectionary that Rembrandt's mother is reading in that painting from 1631 runs from the pre-Christian synagogue to the lectionary texts that we heard this morning. Before 1969, the Sunday liturgy, like the synagogue, had only two readings, one from the epistles and the other from the gospel, usually Matthew's or John's gospel, once in a while Luke, and very, very rarely Mark. We almost never heard Mark. The revised lectionary introduced after 1970 served up larger fare, And something new, it included a reading from the Old Testament that we hadn't had before. The guiding principle for these readings was to choose texts that complemented each other thematically. This meant that the Old Testament reading chosen paralleled the theme of the gospel. The harmony between these Old and New Testament readings teach us what Catholics believe about the Bible, that the Old Testament shows us how the economy of salvation unfolds according to God's plan from the creation of the world in Genesis to the covenant with the chosen people and how this prepares and leads to the incarnation of Christ in human flesh that we hear about in the four Gospels and in Paul. That's the theory, at least. But on a typical Sunday, I wonder if there are many Catholics who wonder what the first reading has in common with the gospel. And in my experience, this is also true of the homilist. This is the place to start with the lectionary readings today. What does Abraham have to do with Matthew's account of the transfiguration? The story of Abraham takes up the first 13 chapters of the book of Genesis from Genesis 12 to 25. These chapters are the interpretive key to the rest of the Old Testament. 
because Abraham's response to God, his obedience, even to his willingness to sacrifice his own son, shapes the entire future of the people of Israel. But it's also the interpretive key for the first 11 books of Genesis because Abraham's story is in contrast to everything that comes before beginning with Adam and Eve. And this is why Adam and Eve were created originally to reign over God's creation as image-bearing stewards. But things, of course, as we all know, fell apart after that conversation with between an, about an apple between the man and a woman and a Hebrew-speaking snake. This is the beginning of the human drama in which we either sin or we suffer from the sins committed by others. And this is what we learn in chapter 4 when Cain kills Abel. This is how we go from bad to worse, and it gets even worser. Then comes the strange story of the Nephilim and the daughters of men in Genesis 6, where we're told that the Lord regretted making human beings, and his heart was grieved. So grieved, in fact, that God decides to push reset button on his human project. This is the story of Noah and the Great Flood. Noah becomes the latest addition of an image-bearing steward, a new beginning for the human race. But the possibility of being free to choose one's future at the same time is the possibility that it may not be the future God intends for us. The hint that this is so comes with the next story, the Tower of Babel. It is either a story of human pride, wanting to build a tower that reaches up to the heavens, or it's a story of an insurance policy against some other flood, depending on how you want to read the story. But the result is that the language is, is confused. When I was a child, my grandmother explained this passage to me very clearly. She said that before the Tower of Babel, everybody spoke French. And after the Tower of Babel, some people began to speak English. She was French-Canadian, and I suspect her theory of linguistics was tinged with a large dose of Canadian politics, beginning with the Plains of Abraham. And this brings us to chapters 12 and 25. God presses reset one more time, calling Abraham to be the first of another edition of renewed humanity. Abraham's obedience, then, is in stark contrast to everything that went before, beginning with Adam and Eve. And Abraham's posterity will gradually expand to a family, and then a tribe, and finally a chosen people, Israel. And it is from that stock that God promises Abraham a Messiah will come. And 2,000 years later, when that Messiah does come, what exactly does he look like? He looks like a carpenter from Nazareth named Jesus. He is, he is a completely new way to be human. It is into his image, into the image of his new humanity that we were baptized. It is his likeness that we were intended to become. And the question is, do I, do you, resemble him in some way? And when people look at me, when they look at you, do they see something clearly Christ-like, or do they just see me or you?
If we have trouble answering the question, and I think in some levels all of us do, remember it's probably because over the course of a year, as we make our way through the lectionary, or maybe even despite it, we forget who exactly we are. We forget that when we were baptized, we became God's new humanity, living icons of Jesus Christ. This is what Gerard Du is suggesting in his painting. In fact, he had a close relationship with Rembrandt, but not necessarily with Rembrandt's mother. He mocks her for this very thing, forgetting who she is despite the lectionary she's holding close to her eyes. The painting is done in such detail that it's even possible to see what she's reading. It's from the beginning of Luke 19, the story of Zacchaeus, a passage that we hear in our lectionary cycle on the 31st Sunday of year C. In that passage, we are told that one of the marks of repentance, one of the marks of Zacchaeus' repentance at least, is the willingness to give away one's possessions to the poor. Yet she's still attached to the furs and expensive clothing and the nice little brooch she's wearing, uh, all dressed up. Lent opens up the possibility of remembering how we have fallen short of what we were baptized to be and to become. And by prayer, fasting, and works of mercy, we push the reset button on ourselves. Or it's probably fairer to say we allow God's grace to do its own work in us, rehumanizing us in the image and likeness of Jesus, the true human being.